0: Hello everyone, this is Sherry Rice. Welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we bring you local guests on topics of interest for you and your family. Today we continue with our topic of COVID 19 and the impact it has had on the people in our community. My guest today is Dr. Alim Serrani, pulmonologist with Northern Nevada Medical Group, and we're going to discuss the impact that COVID 19 has on people's lungs. Welcome, Dr. Serrani.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Well, happy to have you. This We've done a, a, a really great series on COVID-19, and of course there's been a lot to talk about. Right. But going down the path of uh, how it affects your lungs, we haven't done so far, and I'm excited uh, that we get to bring this to the community. But before we, we get into some of the details of how it affects the lungs, do you mind if we go back to March of this year? Because that's really when most people knew that COVID-19 was in our community. Sure. What were your first thoughts when you found out about it?
1: You know, it, it was interesting. You know, I, I quite frankly, I was, I was just like a typical layperson, especially in that, that sort of early point uh, during February where we were seeing this virus sort of make its way across Asia and across Europe. Uh, And slowly myself and, you know, a lot of my colleagues, we were sort of talking about the implications that that we could be facing in the United States in terms of uh, healthcare resource allocation and capabilities and things like that. And as we sort of started learning more and more about it and coming closer and closer to when we started seeing those initial spikes, uh, quite frankly, it was sort of a feeling of of dread uh, because we sort of had this uh, sensation of there's this impending thing that's going to happen. We've seen it go across all of these uh, well-developed uh, sort of nations, where we know they have good uh, good access to healthcare, like we do, and 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 uh, you know, it didn't seem to matter. Uh, death tolls were so high. I recall sort of seeing what was happening in Italy, and uh, and it was scary. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, especially in March, it really lived up to 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 that uh, that unfortunate expectation.
0: Yeah, it was sort of a frenzy for all of us. I know uh, we all have different stories of march for ourselves, but I think there's an overarching theme to it, which you put it very well, this sense of dread, because there just wasn't enough known about the virus.
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah. You know, it um, wasn't enough known about the virus. And, you know, from a healthcare perspective and a healthcare provider perspective, uh, even seeing folks putting themselves in danger, seeing these, you know, seeing... Uh, High degrees of medical personnel uh, getting sick and, and dying, uh, seeing the mortality rates that were happening as healthcare systems were overwhelmed across Asia and Europe. You know, definitely something that uh, that that gave us all pause at that time.
0: Of course, and I believe yeah. um, that Northern Nevada had one of the first patients, didn't they?
1: I, I believe so. You know, we, we were definitely one of the the early hospitals that were that were affected by this. Uh, it's interesting here. I think that. Uh, uh, You know, I think, quite frankly, we did a pretty good job in terms of, you know, what could reasonably be expected for something that had so many unknowns. Uh, You know, we were able to to structure the hospital in such a way where we were able to create uh, large units that were isolating those areas. And we did this prior to receiving uh, that initial uh, deluge of patients. Uh, So we were able to kind of continue functioning as a hospital, uh, able to isolate folks. Uh, you know, able to make sure that that folks had uh, folks that were you know in engaging in high risk uh, activity in terms of treating patients were able to be protected. So I actually felt you know pretty lucky uh, considering how stressful the circumstances are, especially after speaking with a lot of my colleagues on the East Coast. Uh, um, you know, I think we were we were able to manage quite well considering what happened. But yeah, we were one of the first first hospitals to see patients in the area.
0: Can you tell us about? The first patient that you yeah. treated and how that was for you—that was reasonably early on, I believe.
1: It, it was, you know, I, I, you know, in order to sort of protect confidentiality as much as possible, I'm, I'm gonna mm-hmm. try and be broad. But w- what I'll tell you is that, you know, the thing that struck myself and struck a lot of my colleagues about this, this viral illness and the, and the process of the disease and and how it advances was the overwhelming nature of it. I mean, the, the folks that we were seeing, you know. Were, were coming in sort of talking and a little bit short of breath, uh, vice versa. But the escalation in terms of how ill they were occurred, you know, within a, a 24-hour period, sometimes these people uh, would go into multi-organ failure, they would uh, go into severe respiratory failure at a rate that's much faster than, than, you know, what I'm used to seeing with other viral illnesses, with other bacterial illnesses, with systemic illnesses that, that can sometimes result in this, these sort of lung problems. Uh, so 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 you know I recall in in those early days uh, just that sense of my gosh these people are coming in and they are just decompensating uh, you know mm-hmm. much faster mm-hmm. than we could have ever thought yeah
0: well and that's something that uh, you know the layperson all we could read about was in the media and it yeah, was he, extremely funny. yeah and
1: and you know I'll, I'll tell you I think one of the the issues that's been interesting to me and the dichotomy of of, of sort of being in the hospital and and not being in the hospital, is that, you know, given the the infectious nature of this, a lot of hospitals uh, these wards are isolated, and you know the the general public has really no ability to access and see what's actually happening in these wards unless, God forbid, you're one of the family members of somebody's on their deathbed and you know you're able to to sort of get that that uh, you know uh, last right sort of communication with your family member. So. Uh, it's very interesting because it's it's so jarringly different uh, from one place to the other. Seeing patients in these COVID units and then walking across the street and, and seeing patients in the in the uh, in the office, uh, it's a, it's a strange strange thing. And I think it 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 would almost be better if people were able to really see what was happening uh, adequately in the hospital.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're only left to our imagination, and I'm sure, sure for sure. most people, but I'll only talk about myself. Is mm-hmm. that the most frightening piece for me was all of the news items where people died alone, and I think that has a jarring impact on everybody.
1: Really does, you know. For God knows, for the for the family members, I can't even imagine. But I'll tell you, you know, for for the for the nurses and and for the doctors, myself included, you know, as uh, I'm I'm not only a pulmonologist, I'm a critical care specialist, and so you know, it's something mm-hmm. that I, I deal with all the time. Uh, folks dying, it's not new. But but that, you're right, that social isolation, that, that people being in these rooms alone, unable to speak to their family members or you know, loved ones that they've been married to for 50 years and they can't see them you know, on their deathbeds, uh, yeah, it's very, mm-hmm. very jarring and emotionally tongue. Emotionally so I think that the fact that that affected you, it makes a lot of sense because that was one of the hardest things for, for folks here, I know.
0: Well, sure, because we, we personalize it. Right, right. How can you not
1: think yeah, about right, your I own agree.
0: self? Well, let's talk about the lungs because sure. that certainly is what we've been hearing for months is how it affects the lungs, though, um, and again, I only know enough to be dangerous certainly because I get it from the media, but, um, but it seems like that is not, and I'm not saying it's not an issue right now, but it seems like we've figured out a little bit better how to treat the disease, but why does it affect the lungs?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, a couple of thoughts on that. You know, first, initially, in terms of the the lung, you know, these things are still sort of under investigation. The current prevailing theory is that the virus has a, a certain affinity and predilection to receptors that exist uh, within the lung uh, themselves. And so uh, the the thought process right now is that in certain organs, the lungs, perhaps the kidneys, other organs as well, um, that perhaps that viral affinity sort of affects that particular organ system more so and out of proportion uh, to what it would affect uh, in terms of other organ systems, you know when we have somebody who comes in in bacterial sepsis and they 're very severely ill, they sort of have a global uh, a hit to all of their organ systems, whereas uh, the virus seems to have a predilection for certain tissues, and certainly the lungs uh, are one of them you know um, interestingly, you know uh, again, you know a lot of the things unfortunately that you hear. Uh, uh, from from physicians and from scientists you know some of them are just based on best guesses because we still don't quite have data in a good perspective way to make definitive statements Uh, but you know in terms of uh, whether or not we're able to treat these people and doing better I'm not sure whether we really are or not you know I hope we are we have a couple of uh, uh, medications that have shown quite a bit of promise in terms of uh, treating, uh, but I think, quite frankly, a lot of it comes down to just having the healthcare resources available, not overwhelming the healthcare system, uh, and making sure that you're able to take care of large volumes of patients. You know, some of these folks they end up on, on ventilators three, four, five weeks, uh, which right. you know, from the purpose of normal critical care, that's really unheard of. I mean, you don't have people uh, take that long, so that's mm-hmm. a huge suck in terms of uh, in terms of healthcare resource allocation.
0: So, so we also have been reading a lot about the after effects of the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had somebody at ACCESS, a staff member, that ended up positive and ended up in the hospital for mm-hmm. a while because of the lung issue. Um, and it, she worked at home, so none of us were exposed. But still, it seemed like for a month, two months afterwards, she still had the cough, going upstairs was difficult it seems like it's affecting for quite a while.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, think you're, I think you're right. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of sort of uh, reports uh, that are coming out in terms of patients' subjective experiences uh, in the post-COVID time, you know, folks complaining of uh, very severe lethargy for long periods of time, uh, very significant, uh, you know, GI kind of upset and complaints for a long time, respiratory issues for a long time. You know, what I'm hoping for, quite frankly, is, you know, when this is all through, Done with, and and you know it could can't happen soon enough that we're able to you know the, the our, our you know NIH and and our, our large healthcare organizations are able to to put together large kind of cohort studies to look at this because quite frankly we don't know uh you know to what degree folks are having uh, are going to have these long term effects and you know patients who may have. Minimal symptomatology uh, from the perspective of uh, respiratory symptoms may may manifest other uh, sort of long-standing symptoms. We we just don't know yet. You know, I'll tell you that from the from the perspective of at least extrapolating what we do know about the lungs, um, a lot of these a lot of these folks uh, uh, go into what we term uh, a condition called ARDS, and ARDS is essentially a a severe inflammatory resp- reaction uh, that occurs in the lung, and a lot of times people who suffer from that. Uh, as a function of other conditions, they they develop long standing uh, diminished lung functionality, uh, and so if if the COVID uh, uh, induced ARDS uh, presents in the same way, I would expect uh, that people will suffer uh, long standing consequences. But you know, quite frankly, we don't know enough about it yet.
0: Well, and and now, of course, the big issue is the vaccine, and um, and when will it be available, and right. will it have have efficacy and who should get it you know all of that stuff and when you're talking about doing more research and investigation into why it is the lungs it seems like that's absolutely vital because even if we have a vaccine it doesn't mean somebody still can't get COVID-19 is that correct
1: That, that that's correct you know vaccines in general they you know they're never 100% efficacious you know even some of the best mm-hmm. vaccines we have you're talking about 60 70% efficacy and then if you talk about right. you know how we're actually going to going to distribute the vaccine you know again i'm 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 not speaking from, an, from a from a you know a public health or an epidemiologist sort of
0: mm-hmm. expert
1: level opinion but just based on my knowledge you know uh, you're not going to have huge numbers of people initially vaccinated and then the vaccine efficacy uh, is is also a question. And, and, you know, occasionally vaccines will have incomplete efficacy. They may not completely stop something from happening. They may just diminish uh, uh, the degree to which people get sick. So uh, there's a lot of open questions. You know, I, I think a vaccine cannot come soon enough, but what's very important is, you know, a, a vaccine needs to be needs to be uh, kind of run through the ringers. You know, one company recently, I believe it's AstraZeneca, yeah. One one of their vaccine yeah. one of the vaccine candidates, uh, you know, there was a there was a neurologic sort of side effect. Uh, I believe an episode of transverse myelitis, which is a sort of a muscle weakness slash paralysis condition that can occur,
0: mm-hmm. uh, and
1: that happened to one of their folks. And that's a pretty rare condition. And, and you know, if that's something that yeah. can be associated with vaccine, it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, yeah, and certainly, yeah. There's all sorts of stuff about vaccines right now. Yeah. Um, both the efficacy of it and then the political side of it. Unfortunately, yeah. We also, I think, have, uh, which that's another podcast, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you're going to you have uh, to rein me in on those because I can ramble. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's a slippery yeah. slope.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so we've also read, because I keep saying, you know, so much of what we know that's in your wheelhouse we, we're reading in the news, Right. that people are more susceptible to the lung problems if they get the virus, um, if they have previous lung problems, but also if they're smokers or if they vape. And right. it, is that a true? true?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, I think that's as true. You know, some of that I think is is extrapolation from data that we know, which is that folks who suffer from respiratory illnesses who have underlying respiratory problems or expose themselves to chronic respiratory insults, for example, vaping, for example, smoking, those folks don't do as well. You know, a lot of times, too, people will have undiagnosed, very mild um, um, asymptomatic lung disease that, you know, it's a pretty common thing that I hear in my office. Well, you know, I get sick once a year, but then after I get sick, I cough for a month or two when normally people, they, they get better in a week. You know, a lot of times that mm-hmm. means you may have a little bit of a, an under underlying hyperreactive airway. And, you know, if that's something that you suffer from and you're hit with a virus that is... Uh, uh, got a lot of affinity to the lungs specifically absolutely it will manifest uh, uh, more more strongly in that type of person unfortunately
0: hmm. and let's let 's talk about the smoke i mean mm-hmm. I know it 's better uh, we're mm-hmm. we 're taping this i think it 's september twenty fifth and I know that it 's better uh, but boy, we had some bad days didn 't we yeah. and I would imagine that that just exacerbates any any lung problem somebody has and it even got up to extremely unhealthy which kind of means don't breathe it doesn't it right
1: right you know uh, as a mild asthmatic myself you know i was starting to feel a little bit of these these symptoms during that that very uh, smoky time that we were experiencing uh, a few days ago and you know it it sort of it sort of follows kind of logically you know if you're somebody who let's say suffers from chronic but well-controlled asthma you know asthma for example being a, a disease of inflammation which includes smooth muscle hypertrophy. It includes uh, airway constriction. It includes mucus production. So if you're somebody who is now being exposed to this this smoke and the smoke is irritating and it's, it's setting off that inflammatory cascade that's common for asthma and you're producing more mucus and you're having more trouble breathing, uh, you're already in a, a, a sort of diminished pulmonary state. Now, God forbid you get sick from something else, absolutely that will play right. a role, right? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so when it says sensitive, um mm-hmm. Somebody should take heed on that. And sensitive. Some people continue to go out with sensitive, which is fine. But maybe if they're suffering those uh, side effects, they shouldn't go out insensitive, and certainly shouldn't go out in unhealthy or extremely unhealthy.
1: I I completely agree with you. And you know, the you know, when we're when we're at that extremely unhealthy, quite frankly, nobody should be going outside. You know, period. Not not people. You know, even without underlying uh, lung symptoms, really shouldn't be. So I, I agree with that fully.
0: Yeah. Well, we know that COVID nineteen is going to be with us for quite a while, and of course, as you said a few minutes ago, we can't get a vaccine quick enough. But many are saying that that's a good six months away when we talk about getting it to all of the population. What advice do you have for people for their lung health? Um, what is lung health, and how do you how do you get lung health?
1: You know, I think I think I think lung health is. It, 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 it sort of encompasses a couple of things. You know, I think there's the, there's lung health for folks who suffer from underlying lung problems. And for those people, what I would talk about is, or, or you know, what I would suggest is you got to make sure that you have a good therapeutic relationship with your treating physician or your provider. Make sure that, you know, the symptoms that you've been experiencing over long periods of time are controlled. Make mm-hmm. sure that if you're on medication, you're taking them as prescribed. And if you're having issues in terms of, you know, your lung function, that you bring it up to one of your providers or your physicians. Uh, and, and, you know, sort of make sure that you're you're at a nice, good, calm baseline. You know, you don't want to be a person who's been suffering from long-standing lung issues. You just haven't had a chance to go visit somebody to get it taken care of. Uh, and then, you know, you're mm-hmm. going through all these things, you know, viruses, smoke exposure, things like that. That's one side of it. And, you know, the other side of it in terms of lung health is, to me, especially when we're talking about in terms of viruses, just maintaining a, a good, healthy lifestyle. You know, eat well, get plenty mm-hmm. of sleep. Uh, follow guidelines as much as you possibly can uh, that that come down from, you know, the CDC in terms of, you know, minimizing exposure on necessarily uh, uh, doing those things. I think that stuff in an overall way uh, uh, is really important, you know, so, so that you're able to sort of avoid any of these uh, terrible outcomes that we've been seeing.
0: So if somebody, if we go to our PCP, mm. somebody with, um, say, long-term cough, they would go to their PCP and then they would yeah. get sent, to you, a pulmonologist, you can't just call and make an appointment.
1: Yeah, or you know you? a lot of that, and and you know you're now hitting me in an area that I have really minimal knowledge of. Unfortunately, a lot of that has to come down to to what type of insurance that person has. You know, some yeah. insurances will yeah. allow the person to directly uh, make mm-hmm. an appointment, but primary care providers uh, they have a lot of knowledge and they have a lot of uh, ability to to manage things, especially at the beginning. Uh, especially in the mild or moderate forms where they're going to be able to get you some relief uh, even if you're not able to get in to see a specialist immediately. Um, Obviously, you know, when you suffer from persistent symptoms and that escalation of therapy from your primary has not been enough, uh, then then it's very appropriate for folks to see us. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, So, you know, just because you can't immediately get in to see a lung specialist doesn't mean you shouldn't speak to your primary.
0: Got it. I think one of the important things you just said is that if you are experiencing any lung problem, get to your primary care. Don't right. wait until you get the virus. Yeah, get I, I, it taken care of. Yeah. Um. I assume you're you're um a pro mask person.
1: I I am a pro mask person. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So am I. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Part of not getting COVID is yeah. to follow the guidelines.
1: Yeah. You know, I, and this is you know, if I may opine a little bit, you know, to me after having seen. What I see in the hospital, and I know there's a lot of sort of mixed information going around, but for me, on a personal level, I've had colleagues who have gotten sick. I've had people that I work with who had family members that have died. I have a I have a, a mentor uh, where I trained in New York City who, literally six months away from retirement, uh, caught COVID and died. You know, so th- this is mm-hmm. it's a personal thing. Mm-hmm. I see it all the time, and to me. Mm-hmm. Something like masking, which has a very, very good uh, uh, sort of track record and very good evidence, despite what we may or may not hear, seems like a pretty uh, easy thing to to uh, sort of implement to protect uh, your community and to protect your fellow citizens. And I think what sometimes gets lost is, you know, you know, myself as a you know relatively younger person or somebody who's 18 or 19 in college. You know that 18 or 19 year old. Yeah, the mortality rates are 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 very very low, and thank God they're very low. But the point mm-hmm. of of wearing a mask, as you know, I'm, as I'm sure people know, is not to protect yourself; it's to protect other people. You know what we get concerned about is there's a number called R-naught, and R-naught is and is is a number that illustrates how contagious or how quickly a virus is spreading through the community. And the issue is not if you get infected. The the issue is that in an, in an uncontrolled situation. No masks, no social distancing. The R naught for COVID is estimated to be somewhere between two or three, which means any person who gets infected can be expected to infect two or three other folks. And what that does is that creates an exponential growth, and that, that sort of creates these spikes that we see, you know, where you see these low numbers and suddenly you get these, these huge exponential spikes. And so the idea of masking, the idea of social distancing to me uh, just seems like a good way to sort of help protect those around you and help protect your community, even if it's not something that you're doing for yourself.
0: Yeah, and it seems like Washoe County, they can get their numbers down, but they don't stay down. I mean, take yesterday for instance. We're up around, I think it was one fifty-five. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't seem to keep it down around, you know, in thirty, forty, or fifty.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I don't I don't think that that is an isolated issue in Washoe. I think that's a human nature issue, right? Which is that. Yeah. I think we generally have short memories. I think a specific bug like this, which has a couple of week lag time, you know, from time to, to folks getting infected to getting symptomatic, you know, you're looking at a few days, five to seven days, from time, uh, from time where you have uh, an initial group of infections to the time where you really have that exponential spike, there's a lag. And so what, what ends up happening, I think, is that, you know, we as a society tend to be reactive and we say, oh, the numbers are low. Good, let's get back to normal without sort of yeah. realizing, yeah. Well, well, we're just going to, kind of be doomed to repeat the same thing over and over you know i think there are ways that 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 you know we as a society can progress because i think it's it's a difficult thing to tell folks hey you just got to lock yourselves in your house for two years you know i I think you're asking for for failure at that point uh but i think that in order to come up with with reasonable uh uh, solutions i think the first thing you have to do is you have to agree on the problem and i think some of that is Mm -hmm. where we're still struggling a little bit uh, right
0: now Mm So one of the things that we haven't talked about is uh, children and youth and their lungs. Um, we know, certainly just look at Washoe County School District, we know that children are getting the virus. Yes. Uh, we hear, of course, that they aren't getting as sick. Uh, is that something that you have seen play out, that they, uh, that they get well quicker and they don't get as ill?
1: Yeah, you know, I think you know I don't I don't specifically treat uh, the pediatric population, but just in terms of you know as mm-hmm. I keep up with the with the the ever changing medical literature, I think that the the overall kind of understanding within the medical communities, yes, children do not really get sick and they don't really die from the disease. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are a few cases here and there of things that will happen, and you know. The, the reality is that, yeah, kids will also get the flu and die, and, you know, kids will also get other things, unfortunately, and, and they'll right. die, but in terms of infant mortality it seems very low. There are some reports of some autoimmune-style conditions sort of emerging in pediatric populations, but to me, especially as an adult-side uh, person who treats a lot of uh, folks, you know, 55, 60 years old in the ICU, I think the bigger concern for me is children as a vector, you know, children though they may not become sick one of the main issues with with uh with covid-19 is that uh there is a clear delineated period of asymptomatic spread and you know it's not like you get covid and suddenly you know you're sick instantly because you know that would that would be it would be a lot easier to control a pandemic in that way you would isolate people immediately uh, you know, for a number of days and, and you'd be able to stem the, the spread. The problem with this particular virus is folks are able to spread it asymptomatically. And so my concern on the children's side would be a little more, uh, uh, you know, in terms of how they act as a vector to, to those around them and to adults around them.
0: Mm-hmm. Great information. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Serrani, for the insightful conversation we've had today. I know that I've learned a lot. Uh, we've been discussing the effect COVID-19 has on someone's lungs with Dr. Alim Sarani a local pulmonologist with Northern Nevada Medical Group. Thank you so much for being our guest.
1: You're very welcome. Pleasure to be with you.
0: For a list of our podcasts, go to to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. And please, everyone, stay safe, wear your mask, and if you can, get a flu shot.